Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much again for joining us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, we're happy to be back. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Uh, yeah, Kira, how's life? We're, life is, we're starting. Life is, it's yeah. good. It's good. Yeah. You know, the election is behind us. The holidays and a grim COVID surge are upon us. <laughs> so that's <laughs> kind of a weird, weird yeah. place to be in a lot of ways. But there's so yeah, there's a lot going on. It, yeah, I'm just uh, like starting to get ready thinking about what the holidays mean this year. I, I'm, I'm tempted to say like what my plan is for my family that I'm not going to see, but I think they might actually listen to the podcast. So I'm, not, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm working on some like ways to <laughs> attempt to send holiday cheer to my family without nice. being there in person. It's a really, it's a really strange thing. Um, at least for, for those of us who, you know, tend to celebrate the holidays in some way. <laughs> for sure. It's, I, yeah, I feel, I really feel for particularly friends that are, that live alone and we're hoping to be able to see family, but in fact have decided against that because of the surge and the new restrictions coming back and all of that. It's very unfortunate, um, but it is a very different holiday this year for sure. I mean, I won't even be seeing, my household will not even be seeing family that's in the area actually, yeah. which is yeah. weird. You know, I know it's weird. I appreciated the like the New York Times had a piece on like how to make a holiday meal for just one person or just two people, yep. um, which I thought because like I like a lot of like I'm a really big fan of, of like, well, what in the South we call dressing, but what the rest of you call stuffing. Yes, and I, I want to eat it. And even if I don't and like you don't usually make <laughs> like a single serving of, <laughs> of that stuff, but I'm totally planning to to make small and consistent servings of stuffing over that is fantastic months. I'm a huge fan of stuffing and I call it stuffing because I'm from the Midwest um, but I don't plan on making a small amount of that because I love having it for leftovers forever right. yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah you can just make a lot and freeze it yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, he's, he's, we will all be doing that this year I think yeah uh, but it is such an awkward time to be sort of trying to process all of the news about COVID. I mean, there's this terrible news about the surge. And then there's also positive news about vaccines, which I think makes people want to be hopeful and feel like we're turning a corner. But we've actually sort of entered some kind of winter tunnel, it seems like. I don't know. Yeah, it does. But but maybe, you know, but there's a light at the end of it, I think. Yes. Um, and at yes. least that, that's been the feeling this week for me on the on the vaccine news. I it's I was uh, talking to a friend um, the other day who was saying it's hard um, keeping up with like, where are we in time? Because we released the podcast a few weeks later. So I want to say that this is the week that I feel like I heard that there is a potential, like a real potential for a vaccine within the foreseeable future. Yes. Um, that felt different to me in the way that the news media is covering it and things this feels different. Certainly. Um, and just starting to be more conversation about who gets the vaccine and why and how that's going to be managed and um, yep. and all, all of that. So just for for our listeners in the moment that you're listening, this is what's going on in our heads right now. It's like, yeah, oh, really, there's actually a potential for a vaccine. No, absolutely. It is good news and we should celebrate that. It's it's you know, there's two that are that look like with really high efficacy rates. 
and they're they're already dealing with what distribution will look like as you said and that's really that's much more concrete than anything we've had on the vaccine front for months so it's yeah, very exciting yeah, yeah. thanks scientists yes <laughs> yeah yeah so that is i i suppose that's a good a, a good feeling to be having for the week but you know we're still yeah. in the middle of it it's actually raining here in california not at the second but like it's been we're fine we're getting into that part of the year which is uh, which wonderful is yeah it, it is it is it totally is for those of us who've just been you know on the edge of our seats about wildfires and yeah. all of the damage that those have done it's starting to feel like a little bit of a relief that we are getting out of that season at least we yep. think we are it seems absolutely like absolutely yeah, a few nice things for this week indeed and i've been really encouraged too to see um that it really feels like climate intelligence is going to be deployed sort of across the administration and that they're not going to be the new administration and that they won't be seeking to sort of table climate while dealing with COVID, um, but rather acknowledging the urgency and connectedness of those things, which is yeah. really promising. And um, I'm very heartened by that and looking forward to more news of what that's going to look like. Yeah, it is a stunning thing. I'm hearing this within the climate circles that I am in that like the Biden administration seems to really be taking it seriously as one of the main pillars of the of, of the administration, which is right. new for, for those certainly who, and and really appointing okay. people. Yeah, in different agencies with climate credibility and knowledge so that it can be across the board instead of, you know, the way we usually deal with this stuff is a silo. There's like a pocket of people talking about that. <laughs> and yeah, that's not really exactly. going to get the job done. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, I have a small story about that, that I learned of this week, that I hope everyone would, um, will look into, I just learned about a new effort that the Aspen Institute has started called K through 12 climate action. And uh, the woman that's running it at the Aspen Institute is super great, comes from an education background and said that, you know, a few years ago, she read the IPCC reports and realized sort of something that I think she hadn't, an angle that she hadn't looked at this from, which is what should the education sector be doing to help with climate action? Mm -hmm. It's a very different question, I think, than a lot of people ask. And so they're, they've, she's really, they've brought together a lot of leaders in the education sector to ask these questions about what role they can play. And it's just, it, it, it struck me that the way she thinks about it and the way that that effort is organized is much more of a sense of sort of not what is our responsibility per se, but what can we do to help? What are we uniquely able to do? What are we uniquely positioned to do to help with the climate fight? Um, mm -hmm. which feels to me to be a, a shift that a lot of people are going through. But I just wanted to highlight that because I was very excited to hear about it. I obviously care a lot about schools and have a background in that stuff. And I'm so happy to hear that that, that, that the Aspen Institute is sort of doing the work to try to bring together the education sector to figure out how they can, you know, more meaningfully show up for this issue, which, right. perhaps, you know, we should probably like return the favor and help them with all the things that we need to work on. Indeed, in, in, indeed. In America. But, I'm know. eager to learn more about that, Lindsay. Um, yeah, yeah. As a, I have a child in the K-12 world. And um, so I actually have spent some time talking to teachers about how we can get climate 
integrated into curriculum and different ways yeah. to do that. Um, and it's not, you know, in, there are easy things to do. And then there are a lot of other, there are a lot of hurdles to getting it in, in a deeper way too. So I'm totally. e eager to learn more about that. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited about it. it sounds like fun. Well, we should start transitioning to our guest yes. because we have so much to talk to her about. And I'm so excited uh, to introduce everybody that has not yet heard of Adrian. Uh, Adrian Johnston. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, it's such an honor to be in the company of yourselves, but also um, so many other amazing women that you've had on the podcast. So thanks so much. <laughs> We're so happy to have you, Adrian. Um, I'm just going to do a quick intro and then we'll jump into some questions. Adrian is an associate engineer at Point Energy Innovations. Um, she leverages her energy modeling and mechanical design expertise to ensure the success of net zero energy and high performance building projects. Before coming to PEI, she worked at the USGBC as a MAP Sustainable Energy Research Fellow investigating water and energy efficiency and the role of sustainable building projects in the California water crisis. Yeah, it's so cool. I'm excited to talk to you about all these things, Adrian. Um, so first of all, we just want to give you the space to talk about um, what got you started on the path that you're on, what attracted you to engineering, how you got interested in high performance buildings, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I got to college, I uh, was really interested in math and science and art classes and they just made sense to me in a way that my other classes didn't. Um, but when I got to college, I wasn't actually thinking about engineering. I didn't really know what it was, and I'd only ever talked to one engineer before at a job fair. And to be honest, I thought that her job sounded boring. Um, funny enough, uh, she's actually a civil engineer, which is what I later studied. But yeah, at the time, I thought that I you know, wanted to be a doctor and that's what you did with interest in math and science and it was familiar to me and I also didn't think that I would have enough time to study engineering because I was also on the track team at the time but um, but yeah college, college is awesome because you can try a bunch of different things and get out of your comfort zone and there's there are very few negative consequences <laughs> for doing those things and there are like two things that stick out to me the most um, in terms of getting me interested in uh, engineering and high performance building specifically. The first is I, I took this architectural drawing class and that's uh, how I found my way to civil engineering is we had to go around our campus sketching buildings and that taught me to see the built environment in a way that I just never had before. And I was suddenly like very fascinated by all these incredibly complex structures that, you know, allow us to do so much in our daily lives. But most people, and, and especially me before that, they don't really give them a second thought unless they're uncomfortable. And then the second moment for me was, was studying abroad in Berlin, uh, which was very scary at the time because I had to quit the track team and lose that aspect of my identity to do it, but I really just gained so much more. And, and Berlin is actually where I was introduced to the concept of sustainable buildings. And I got to live in this incredible, like efficient city. It was my first time living in a city and there's amazing public transit there. 
Um, and I also got to work during the summer at an engineering firm in their green building auditing group. And so we would go throughout the city evaluating all of these German engineered buildings from an energy efficiency perspective. Um, and then back in the office, I, I was working on a comparison of LEED for neighborhood development to the, the German version of the rating system, um, DGNB. And having that experience helped me to understand green buildings in this larger context of the communities and, and cities that they serve. So when I came back from Germany, I, I decided to apply to, to stay at Stanford and, and ultimately do a master's degree in that was specifically focused on sustainable design construction. And that is how I met uh, Peter Rumsey, um, who is the founder and CEO of Point Energy, where I work today. Um, and I'm actually a mechanical engineer now, so I switched teams, but I'm working on designing high performance and low energy buildings every day. That's super cool. Um, and I know, I mean, I actually, I, I came to speak sometimes at Peter Rumsey's class and I, yes. I can say that like it's a, he, um, that whole Stanford program seems like a really great one um, for getting people exposed to all of the different like things you can do in the world of sustainable mm -hmm. buildings. So um, yeah, just a shout out to Peter for taking the time to be an <laughs> educator on the side. Indeed. <laughs> Well, so I know I first learned about you in a very specific moment. You were, you received the Malcolm Lewis Award. And I don't remember if you were the first, but you were the first one that I remember anyway. And mm -hmm. uh, it meant a lot to me, Malcolm Lewis. I think I've spoken about on the podcast before, but I got, I had the privilege of working with Malcolm at uh, the USGBC in many of the early days when he was very involved in the development of LEED and a lot of different facets of its technical work. And so the awards always meant a lot to me. And when I read about you and, and the work you did with uh, your project, it, it's that, it really made an impression. I remember voting for it and feeling very good about it. Oh my goodness. They were rooting for you. It was like a Facebook thing, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank but you. yeah, so could, tell us about that work. Um, I think that it was really inspiring. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for voting for us. That was yeah, an incredible honor. And I, I, you know, unfortunately never got to meet Malcolm Lewis, but um, just hearing so many stories that people told about him, it was an honor to get this award in, in his name. But yeah, as for the, the project itself, so it was called the Parkwood Tech Center Project, and I worked on it for about three years, sort of towards the end of school and a little while after. Um, but it's a, a net positive energy community center at a primary school located in Parkwood, just outside of Cape Town. And this is a neighborhood where many uh, colored folks, and that's colored with a U, um, they were forced to um, relocate to under apartheid. And um, this area has historically been ignored um, and underserved by the Cape Town government. Um, so our, our main partner for this project was a, a local nonprofit called Bottom Up. And they had been working in the community for several years already and had developed a lot of really effective after-school programs. And actually the funds that came with the Malcolm Lewis Impact Award, they went directly to bottom up so they could continue their programs. 
um, and, and they do things ranging from dance to chess to a computer-based math program that was really successful, um, but they were in need of a safe and um, healthy space in order to continue these programs for the students. Um, so we worked with them to design a new facility um, and we ended up fundraising around like $80,000 uh, US for the construction efforts, both in-kind donations of materials and also um, direct cash donations. Uh, and then ultimately uh, at the end of the project, when we got to the point of being able to build, um, I, I moved there um, with my teammate, Morgan Abbott, um, she and I moved there to manage the construction of the project on site. And I think this project was just so, so important for me. And we really attribute the success of the project to all the partnerships that we had at the time. Um, there were, in addition to Bottom Up and also Parkwood Primary School, there were so many architects and engineers and, and volunteers that gave their time and expertise in order um, to make this happen. Actually, one of my favorite examples was SunPower. They actually donated a, a 12 kilowatt solar PV array um, that, that powers the entire building, but also you know, generates enough energy to reduce the school's uh, energy bills by like around 40%, which saves them money that they can actually spend on more programs for students. That is fantastic, Adrienne. What a powerful experience. Um, yeah. I guess I didn't, I, I think, I mean, I remember the time when you won the award, but I hadn't recalled that you, you know, were able to be there for construction and all of that too, which is really incredible. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I, it was, I, yeah, just such a foundational project. Um, and I think the main thing that I took away from it was how important like, community engagement and, and partnerships are. And it also like, shaped the way that I see our building industry and the purpose of sustainable buildings. It was really how I came to understand that infrastructure, you know, for so long and in so many places, it can be used as a tool to disenfranchise communities of color. Um, but it also really helped me to learn that building in a sustainable and inclusive way can, can be a powerful tool um, and create opportunity. That's fantastic. Do I remember correctly, is this true that it was an all-woman team? Um, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> well, on the, on the student side. Um, yep. the end, yes. That's was. great. How fun. That's unusual for the industry, for sure. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, uh, so I want to shift gears just slightly and ask kind of a broader question about sort of what you've been, what you're proud of accomplishing in your work life. I mean, not specifically a project, but really more general things, personal things about functioning in the industry or, or even, you know, whatever that might be. Um, thank you. Yeah, this is a, a difficult one. I think a lot of women in particular often tend to like discount their own agency and, and role in their accomplishments. And it can make it hard to recognize the things that you've done that you can be proud of. And for me personally, this is definitely still a work in progress, but I, I would say that I'm, I'm proud of, of how I've learned to speak up 
in, in meetings and advocate for myself in the workplace. This definitely didn't come easy to me when I first started out. And I would often have this feeling like I was invisible in meetings I went to outside of our office. And a lot of that was because I was new and, and wasn't an expert in the room um, in the way that I am now, but there were other things at play too. And actually I have a, a brief story. Uh, I will never forget this, but in one of the first meetings I went to when I had just started working full time, um, there was this older um, uh, white gentleman from a different company who he like didn't acknowledge my presence like throughout the entire meeting, even though there were only like five people in the room. And I, I had spoken a couple of times. And then finally, at the end of the meeting, he turns to me and he says, nice to meet you. You're very well behaved. Which was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was horrible. And I, I can laugh about it now, um, but at the time it just made me feel so small and, and I didn't know how to react. Like I was, I was totally shocked um, and I was wondering like, is he saying that because I'm a woman? Is he saying that because I'm black? Is it because I'm young? Probably a combination of all three. Anyway, this, this experience has really stuck with me and that man's behavior was, despicable and and honestly didn't really have anything to do with me in particular um but i've I've worked really hard to to try and never feel that way again and i've spent a lot of time in particular and and i probably will you know for the rest of my career but i've been trying to figure out how to take up space in our largely white and and male dominated industry but also to try to do that in a way that creates that still create space for for others to contribute. That's great, Adrian. I, that's that's a really um I mean, I guess I'm not shocked, sadly, but I am I am distressed. <laughs> yeah. like, shocked is the wrong word because that would be that would be incredibly naive. Um but but it's distressing. It just reminds me too how people that haven't had an experience like that. This is like um you know there was that phase when architects would um, do certain things to understand what it was like to be disabled. I feel like we need to do the same thing with what it, to have those experiences and understand what that kind of behavior, those interpersonal um, experiences so that we can understand what that's like, because yeah. that's really transformative. I'm just imagining how entertaining it would be to go into a meeting with an older white gentleman and at the very end of it say, nice to meet you, you're very well behaved. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Just to uh, be like, uh, just just to say that you did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like definitely fantasized about doing that and yes. all the things I wish I had said in the moment. <laughs> right. That's just, yeah. Well, um, Adrian, I wanted to ask you, it's, you know, you're relatively early in your career. And for a lot of people who care about social justice issues, um, it can be kind of hard to figure out how to fit these into the day to day of project work. Um, and I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about how you have found ways um, to do that. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, yeah, you bring up a really good point um, about how hard it is when you're early in your career to to 
do things like this and and take more agency in what you do like i think for anyone when you first start you join a company and you don't really have any say over what the company business strategy is and and what projects you're going to work on and i i feel very lucky to work at a firm that really prioritizes high performance buildings and and low energy and low carbon buildings um, but also the reality is that we are based in San Francisco and uh, we work in Silicon Valley. And often, though not always, we're designing these projects for some of the wealthiest companies in the world. And this is a really important part of the solution, especially given the scale and visibility of these companies. But there's also historically been and, and still is a fairly broad perception that sustainable buildings are only for these types of companies, though that is starting to change. Um, to work on, on things in this area, um, one of the main things that I did was I have been working with this local organization in Oakland called Bay Area Wilderness Training and uh, a little more about that. Their mission is to provide meaningful uh, outdoors experiences for youth of color and those in low-income communities. And we do this by offering training and free gear and, and many grants to teachers and, and youth workers that are already partners in the community so that they can take the kids that they work with on outdoor trips. I love hiking as much as the next sustainability professional, uh, um, but I, I've been trying to turn my focus back to the built environment, uh, especially uh, within the past year. I think there's been a lot more discussion about social justice in the built environment, um, and I think it's, it's such a critical part of um, the discussion. And so, yeah, now that I've I've gotten my bearings in the industry a little bit more, I've I've been able to meet some new people, and I've discovered these like, pockets of amazing individuals that care very deeply and and work really hard, specifically on social justice and green buildings, and uh, I've been trying to work my way into those communities, and and one group in particular is the NAACP's Centering Equity in the Sustainable Building Sector Group. I think actually you, you had Mandy Lee on the podcast before. Yes, yeah. we did. She was great. Um, yeah, so, yeah, she's amazing. And, and Jackie Patterson also is such an inspiration. But so I, I've been getting involved a little bit in, in some of the work that they do. And then in my paid job, I guess, um, and this also goes along with what I was saying earlier about like, learning to, to speak up and advocate for myself. Um, I've, I've actually had a few conversations with our CEO, Peter, about how important being able to work on social justice focused projects is to me. And to his credit, he, he really listened to me. And, and since then, for the past like almost year, he and I have been working together on how to expand our firm's portfolio to include more community-focused work. And it's been amazing because, you know, here I am only like four years into my career um, and I get to go to these marketing meetings where just he and I are talking with like the name principal of an architecture firm or a developer about their work on affordable housing and 
community centers and, and how our firm can fit into it and, and partner with them. And it's, it's actually resulted in me now, uh, I'm newly uh, getting to manage a, a project uh, in which we're doing some energy consulting for an affordable housing development um, right here in, in Oakland that's uh, targeting net zero energy. So it's, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, such an exciting day when I found out we got that project. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope everyone out there can take that as, as a sign that it is possible. I mean, you know, you, you, you're fortunate, right? Because you work in a workplace where you have someone who's listening, and I know not everybody has that. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, you know, we all get to choose where we work. And uh, if you're not feeling like you, you are in a place, uh, <laughs> at least in our industry, we get to choose where we work. So, you know, this the strength of being in a firm you know, somewhat smaller and also just with, with good leadership that, that enables that type of, uh, you know, opportunity for um, people in at least, especially in their junior years of uh, their career is really exciting. And I hope everybody else feels like at least inspired to go have that conversation with their boss if, if it's something that is on your mind. Well, so uh, aside from that project, what else are you working on right now that you think uh, it would be fun for listeners to know about? Anything, anything new? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, the, the great thing also about working at a, a small and, and sort of dynamic consulting firm is that we work on a lot of different types of projects. And so it's not all, you know, load calcs and energy modeling and equipment sizing. So currently I'm working on supporting a couple of education initiatives that we're doing. Um, The first is assisting a bit with the course that Peter teaches at Stanford. Um, It's called Advanced Topics and Energy Efficient Buildings. And the topics, as you can probably imagine, are always changing and we're constantly looking for ways to continually improve the course, um, especially given the way that our education systems have had to adapt over the past year. So one part of this effort is working with some education experts to dig into theory related to um, STEM pedagogy and essentially uh, nerding out and learning how to most effectively convey the information in the class and improve learner engagement. And then the other part of this is uh, talking to the environmental justice working group at Stanford in order to get connected with the work of some local community organizations like Urban Habitat and Climate Justice Alliance and, and to try to figure out a really effective and authentic way to build in a grounding in environmental justice knowledge into the course. And then the other initiative, which is still in development, and I can't really share too much about it yet, but we're essentially looking to adapt these course materials from the long running class and and leveraging them in order to create resources that are specifically related to building decarbonization available to professors across the country, completely free of charge. 
we're still working on this, as I mentioned, um, but the idea here is that we can provide these resources for free and take some of the load off of professors and in, in needing to prepare and vet this type of information. And all of this is in service of making sure that our future leaders in architecture, engineering, and construction are prepared to come out of school and start making a tangible impact. Adrian, that's so exciting. I think that is really meaningful. There is absolutely a, I was going to say a desperate need. That sounds a little negative, but it, <laughs> it, is a, it is a clear need, you know, in the education setting for that kind of resource. And I also think, um, speaking with my AIA Committee on the Environment hat on, I think when you, when we, when you gather resources like that and make them really accessible, you know, the educators are going to use them. They will do that. If you make it easy, they will tap into it. You know, so I think that's exciting. Um, I'm delighted to hear about that. Uh, that's really cool. Um, and I also wanted to ask you, this is a slight shift again, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, this is kind of a general question that we like to talk a little bit about is, you know, you're a part of, well, the, the sustainable buildings industry is often thought of as a movement and referred to as a movement. And I'm just wondering um, whether you feel like you're part of the industry or the movement or, or both, or how do you think about that for yourself? Mm, yes, um, I, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm part of a movement. I have been thinking about this statistic a lot. Like our buildings account for 40% of our GHG emissions, and they're such a, a critical piece of the fight against climate change. Um, and so that that makes me feel like I'm working on something larger in connection with people in a movement. And I also, in, in my first year at Point Energy, I had a really foundational experience in my work where I got to work on the study that our firm did for the, the UC Office of the President and we were helping them to understand the cost effectiveness of electrifying their future building stock in service of their decarbonization goals. And our analysis found that in almost every case uh, across their 10 campuses in the state, it, it was cost effective. And later, in part due to this and also lots of other analysis that many other people did, but they ultimately did decide to ban fossil fuels from their future buildings. And that just clarified for me the possible impacts of, of the work that we're doing. Like to think that the energy modeling and analysis that, that we're doing at our computers every day can make this big impact that will um, affect so many others' lives for many yeah. years to come is, is really exciting. That's um, tremendous. That is really powerful to see that kind of impact and to see it acted on in that really direct way. That's fantastic. I feel very lucky. And I'm yeah, just so inspired by all the other people that are, you know, working in our industry. It's it's a surprisingly small community. Um, I feel like at, at every conference, I know most of the names. Um, but I, I, it helps me to feel a sense of camaraderie with the people um, that I work with and, and meet. Yay. Yeah, yeah, no, totally agreed. And I'm glad that, that you feel that. And um, because I, it's one of my favorite things about the work is that mm -hmm. we do feel like a community. Um, 
and uh and yeah <laughs> like the i miss conferences for that reason that uh. we get to actually have like a reunion times um mm -hmm. but so as a member of a community uh i'm sure there are areas that you feel that we are doing better and areas that we feel like you're we're doing worse so <laughs> where do you think we need to go faster where where are our areas of lack of progress and and where are the ways that the areas that you think that we've actually done well in so far um yes so in terms of lack of progress i i would say that in the inclusion and, and social equity piece that I, I was talking about before both in terms of what our industry looks like you know, who, who's in our industry, but also like, the types of projects that we work on and the perception of who can afford and who deserves sustainable infrastructure. Um, I think there's there's still a, a lot of work left to do there. I'm excited a, a lot of people are um, doing that. And then in terms of major progress, um, I haven't been in the industry for that long, but I, I think we've made some really strong advancements in terms of technology and their uptake of renewables and even energy storage now. But honestly, like I was really lucky that my education was like very specifically focused on sustainability. So when I came out of school, I believed that there wasn't really any other way <laughs> to design buildings. And I, I didn't understand why someone wouldn't design the most efficient building that they could. Um, and I also thought that, you know, zero net energy buildings were it. Like that is that was going to be how we saved the world. And I thought they would be a much bigger part of the picture. But I, I've been surprised and, and excited about this new emphasis on electrification and, and decarbonization and that, you know, people in our industry are really starting to think about buildings in their greater context of our, our energy systems and, and regulations and that that synergy is is going to be really critical for us to to fix our system. Yeah, totally. I agree. It's a really cool transition to watch everybody starting to see that the the goal here is this larger transition of energy, right? It's like the just energy transition, however we want to talk about it. And it, but it, the buildings only play a part in that, and that it's important for us to think about what that role is, what what our job is as a part of a team, um, more so than just getting to think about uh, the building industry in in isolation. I totally totally mm -hmm. agree. Well, thank you. We have one last question for you um, that we always like to end with, which is mm -hmm. about um, who is inspiring you these days. And it can be anyone personal or professional, any, anybody that's, um, you know, out there in the world doing anything that, I don't know, maybe helps give you some energy in, in these trying times. Yes, uh, definitely need as much energy <laughs> as I can get after this year but yeah wow there are there are so many people um that inspire me just like on a daily basis i would say that right now i'm i'm really inspired by a lot of the people that are doing that the work on that inclusion and, and social equity and social justice um part of our industry like 
Deanna Van Buren comes to mind. She's an amazing architect and uh, that designs restorative justice centers and, and other um, types of community buildings and, and spaces with her firm. It's called Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. Um, also Liz Ogbu, who I know was uh, on the podcast, this brilliant designer and planner um, who focuses on transforming uh, unjust urban spaces. Also, on a more personal note, and also uh, she may be shocked to hear me say this, but one of my closest friends, uh, Sherry Billamoria, who I never would have met if I hadn't gone to Berlin, actually, but she, she works uh, at Rocky Mountain Institute, and she is an expert in electrification and regulatory, the regulatory aspect of our electrical um, utilities. And she's just a brilliant communicator. Uh, and she wrote RMI's residential building electrification study. And it's so incredible to me to see like that study has been cited by all these cities and, and governments that are now banning fossil fuels from their future building stock and, and working towards decarbonization. And I'm so excited and also just putting it out there that I know her um, when she becomes like a commissioner or <laughs> some incredibly power, powerful person <laughs> in the future. <laughs> and then uh, uh, finally, I'm, I'm really amazed by all of the, the youth climate activists that are out there demanding action and you know, working to help protect their futures and working really on everyone's behalf to, to push us towards you know, the Green New Deal and, and beyond that, they're just amazing role models at, at such young ages and their energy uh, really inspires me uh, and, and keeps me going. Yeah, it's, it, it does the same for me. It's amazing um, to, just to have watched that, that group of people come up in the world. Um, and I know I'm probably also speaking for lots of people and saying that I think you are one of those people for other people. <laughs> so I think it's like it's worth, uh, you know, wrapping up on that note um, to say thank you for uh, inspiring uh, those around you, uh, even so early in your career. It's really, it's, um, it's felt and it is important. So um, yeah, we appreciate you being on the podcast. It's been really lovely wow. to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, this has been really fun. I'm a major podcast fan, so it's kind of crazy Yay. to get to be on one. But, but yeah, thank you, Lindsay and, and Kira, uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been Absolutely. great to have you, Adrian. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And that is it for us this week on Women and Sustainability, Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.